welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Gage Crowder on September 18th, Lord's Day Service. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Pray with me. Our good God, Father, and Savior, we give you thanks for the benefits and gifts that you constantly shower on us. We ask that you would help this morning as we are looking uh, into church history as we do this exercise of honoring our fathers and mothers in the faith. We pray that you would bless it, help us to learn and to grow from it and uh, make us curious about uh, the people that you have given us as our brothers and sisters. And we ask this morning that you would prepare our hearts for worship soon. Through Christ our Savior and in the power of the Spirit, we ask this. Amen. All right, so we are talking about, as I'm sure you've seen by now, this is uh, studies in church history, profiles of church history, looking at uh, different eras and different uh, people of the medieval church this morning, medieval church. And just to kind of lay out uh, a plan here, the next two weeks we're going to park in the medieval era for two separate weeks. This week is going to be medieval theology, and next week is going to be uh, medieval interpretation. Uh, So model and method. Okay, we're looking at the work of theology and the different books and different ideas that medieval authors produced, and then how they produced it, which is just as significant and just as uh, insightful and helpful for us. So that's what we're doing. When we go over to James chapter 1, though, I want to read a quick verse before we get going. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. One of the things that's interesting about the medieval period and the medieval era, which by the way, um, when I'm talking about medieval, I'm talking about the period from approximately 590 to 1321. That's the dates I give it. Um, 590, a man named Gregory... Gregory the Great becomes Pope, uh, head of the uh, church in Rome. We'll talk about him a little bit next time. And uh, he brings about some important reformations to the church uh, that really open the gate for all of medieval thinking. 1321, the Divine Comedy is finished. Okay, you're probably a little more familiar with that one. Uh, Dante's uh, massive poem that encapsulates all the theology of the medieval era it's done. After that, we're really getting into the Renaissance. Okay, after him, you're starting to see uh, Giotto and the other Florentine masters come up, and uh, we're moving out of medieval thought and clearly into the Renaissance. So, 590, 1321, of course, those are arbitrary dates. Uh, you might have something different, and it's okay to be wrong, right? But that's where I put them. So, that's medieval era. Uh, why I read these verses here in the beginning of James. Jason told us a couple of weeks ago about the um, terrible third century, we might call it, the ten waves of persecution that happened in the early church. 
And James is writing to those people uh, in the early church, the 12 tribes scattered abroad that happens in Acts chapters 8 through 12, and he's telling them, uh, don't be revolutionaries. You're facing persecution. Uh, don't fight back. The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. And what we see for 300 years, essentially, 250 years in the early church, is the church not fighting back when it's persecuted. And being promised here by James that if they do not retaliate in anger, that they will be blessed in their perseverance. And the medieval era is the fruit of that perseverance. The church for 250 years is squashed by the empire. Nevertheless, in God's blessing, because of how they take that persecution, they continue to grow. And they grow so much, they fill Europe and send out missionaries all over the world. So the difference between the ancient church and the medieval church is that in the ancient church, we are primarily concerned with the clarification of doctrine. Okay. The first 200 years of the church are concerned with clarification. And what I mean by that is, you've got heresies running amok. Right? You've got um, some of the New Testament still uh, being written there before about AD 90. You've got uh, persecutions outside that we've talked about. There is no time when you're trying to not lose your head and just trying to figure out what every Christian should, should believe to reflect for long periods of time on the minute issues of theology. Uh, so in the ancient era, we see councils. Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, where it, the, the clarifying message is, what do you have to do to be a Christian? Do you have to accept circumcision? Do you have to keep the Jewish laws? And the church answers, no. Okay, they give a very short list of the requirements for being a Christian in Acts chapter 15. Council of Ephesus, what are the dates? Okay. When do we celebrate Easter? Do we go to church on Sunday or do we go to church on Saturday? Uh, Council of Carthage deals with the Donatists. Do we accept people back, the people that Jason mentioned elapsed, who under the persecution they fall away? How do we take them back into the church? Do we let them back into the church? And then ultimately the crowning jewel of the ancient church's clarification, the Nicene Creed, right? the Council of Nicaea that we say every single Sunday. It's the most basic, bare-bones, clear teaching on what it means to be a Christian. We believe in God the Father, the Trinity, the Holy Catholic Church, one baptism, communion of saints, judgment. Right? There's no footnote at the end of Nicaea that says the last judgment, oh, by the way, you must be post-millennialist. Right? Or you must be amill, or you must be pre-mill. Okay? No, it just says there's going to be a judgment, period. All right? It's clear. The men at the Council of Nicaea, some of them were missing limbs, and eyes, some of them had been tortured. They're just trying to get out the essential message. Right? And that's what we're seeing in the early church. After this, though, uh, 325, the Council of Nicaea. 313, Constantine issues the Edict of Milan and legalizes Christianity. In 380, Emperor Theodosius makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. 393, he closes the Olympic Games and all theaters. Christianity now is legal flourishing in the Roman Empire. The church, for the first time in the medieval era, can breathe. All right. And for the first time, they are able to not just clarify, but reflect on their beliefs. Uh, this is a time of explanation of Christian doctrine. Not just clarification, but explanation. Because of the uh, calmness that had come over the church with the relief of persecution. 
So what we want to do this morning is look at some of those explanations. All right. Who are these principal explainers? And what are the principal doctrines that are expounded on uh, in the medieval church? And what can we learn from them? All right. And what can we learn about these men? How can we be encouraged by their life and their teaching? So we're going to look at uh, three, I like to call them the three A's of medieval theology. Okay, that's what we're looking at. Three A's. And this is Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas. Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas. So we're going to look at those three and then ask four big questions about Christian theology that I think that they help to answer for us. Who are we? What do we need? How do we get it? What do we do with it? Okay. So Aquinas, Anselm, and Augustine are going to answer those four questions for us. Let's jump in. So number one, Aurelius Augustine. Okay. Uh, Augustine is born in 354, and he dies in 430. 354 to 430. Um, I know some of you are probably immediately thinking, wait a second, didn't you say medieval is 590, 1321? This guy dies before Gregory the Great's even born. Okay. Uh, I'll explain myself here. Uh, Augustine is the fountainhead of all Western theology. Okay. Without Augustine... There is no medieval theology. His initial doctrines uh, and explanations that we talked about are the touchstone of all medieval theology, and in fact, all Western theology, all Reformed theology, even. Uh, and we'll talk more about that at the moment. But that's why I put Augustine in here. Uh, you have to have him in because if you don't understand his work and his teaching, nothing else uh, will really make sense going forward, and it'll be out of context. So Augustine, 354 to 430. Augustine is born in Tagast. Okay, Tagast. It's a small city in modern Algeria. And in the Roman Empire, it was essentially backwater. Okay. It was a very, very inconsequential place to be born. He's not uh, from Rome. He's not from Carthage or any of these great cities that he later goes to. Uh, he's born in the sticks of the Roman Empire, we would say. And everything we know about Augustine's life, we know a lot more about him than we do about uh, most of these other figures in church history because he wrote them down in a book that you should read and I commend to you heartily called The Confessions. Okay? Uh, you should get a copy ASAP. That's your homework from the lesson today is to get a copy and to read The Confessions. Uh, but he tells us he's born in Tagast. He tells us a little bit about his parents. Uh, Patricus is his father. Patricus. He is a Roman pagan in uh, the, the truest sense of the word. Okay. Uh, his father is uh, not interested at all in Christianity. In fact, he is a, uh, what the Roman Empire called a decurion. A decurion, which is essentially uh, a minor imperial administrator. He's like a town councilor. Uh, governor of his town, essentially is the way we would think about it, uh, maybe a mayor of some sort. So he has some sort of rank in this small, inconsequential territory that Augustine's born into, uh, but very pagan. His mother, on the other hand, who in her own right could have a Sunday school class, she's a very uh, a fine lady for um, you all in here to emulate. Her name is Monica. Okay. And she herself, in the Catholic Church, is also hailed as a saint, along with her son, Augustine. Uh, Monica is a devout Christian woman, and she's remembered all throughout the confessions by Augustine 
uh, as a woman of many prayers and many tears. Uh, every time she comes up in the confessions, it's, it's waterworks. Okay? She is always praying for her son and for her husband, for their conversion, uh, for their growing up into Christ. Uh, even later in Augustine's life, she's the same way. So that's his parents. Um, and what we see in Augustine's life is a, a tornness, a fragmentation. Uh, Augustine has two worlds in front of him to look at. Monica, Patricus. Which one will he be? And from his early adolescence, um, he feels that very, very keenly. Um, is he going to follow his father, who makes a habit of taking his son to make the sacrifices to the Roman gods and takes him to the uh, public baths where uh, a young Augustine is exposed to things a young man should not be exposed to at his age? Or is he going to follow his mother, Monica, who's constantly entreating him uh, not to go after the ways of his father, not to be like his pagan dad? What's he going to do? And this is really the hallmark of the Confessions, this whole concept of being torn. On the, one of the very, very first pages of the Confessions in Book 1, Augustine uh, makes a point of talking about his restless heart. Okay? Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O Lord. Is one of the uh, principal quotations from the work. So this tornness really uh, controls Augustine. It moves him through his early years until he becomes a Christian at the age of 32, which we'll get to in a moment. But he's a gifted thinker uh, from very early on, a gifted thinker and specifically a gifted rhetorician. All right? He is a smooth talker, and he's smart, and he knows that he's good at it. And so very early on, his dad uses what little, um, uh, what little clout and position that he has in the empire to get Augustine into a good school so that he can uh, learn to hone this rhetorical skill. Right? And so he goes off to school, um, and he is, Augustine is a very, very ambitious young man. He sets for himself early on uh, the high goal of being the speechwriter for the Roman emperor. That's his top goal in life. At the same time, though, Augustine is not just a talker. He is a thinker, very smart. It's not empty words that he's throwing out. And so from early on in life, he's also looking. He gets involved for a long time with some Neoplatonists, which is a, a Greek philosophical movement uh, that emphasized higher spiritual experience, escaping the physical world in favor of uh, living this astute intellectual life. So he's speaking, he's thinking, he eventually gets involved with uh, a Gnostic group called the Manichaeans, which is a, they're a Christian heretical group, so for a long time, uh, the better part of uh, 15 years, he's walking around uh, with these Manichaeans. So Augustine is ambitious, he's idealistic, he wants the highest post in the empire and the deepest truth in the world. Okay? You can see his restlessness coming forward in all of this. After he does his initial studies, he moves to Carthage for nine years. And there's a very, very famous quotations in, quotation in the Confessions uh, when the book begins, To Carthage, Then I Came. And it's supposed to be like this dun, 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 moment. We're supposed to think, oh no, something bad's about to happen. Because Carthage is where Augustine begins to sow his wild oats. All right? He doesn't have mom pressing the brakes anymore. 
All right, he completely pursues the ways of his father, goes off into rampant uh, immorality and licentious living, and uh, explores all that his heart desires for these nine years in Carthage. Um, there is a famous quotation in T.S. Eliot. There it is. Uh, in one of T.S. Eliot's poems, it's the epigraph at the beginning of the poem, To Carthage Then I Came, and Eliot's trying to tell you uh, something bad's about to happen. Uh, what's coming up here. There's about to be some moral degradation going on. Uh, and very much appropriate for what Augustine's trying to communicate. So he spends nine years in Carthage, and then eventually he meets Symmachus. Okay? Symmachus is the, uh, the governor of Rome. Okay? Um, so a pretty high-up official, he recognizes Augustine's talent as his... Uh, um, Rhetorical skill is spreading throughout the empire. People are learning about him. And Symmachus says, I want you to come be the chief professor at our rhetorical school in Rome. Augustine says, yes, takes it, loves it, because back in Carthage, he was doing what he wanted, and all of his students that he had, his rhetorical students, they would come to every single lecture. They would listen to him in the Lyceum there, speak and learn. And then at the end of the course, when they were supposed to pay him, he never got his money. Okay. Ah, the life of a teacher. Right? Always in want. Uh, so Augustine is pretty fed up with the students that he has there in Carthage. Uh, so he eagerly moves on to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he is horrified by the degradation of the empire. Okay, this is supposed to be the highest of highs. right? This is supposed to be uh, Rome at its finest, in its imperial capital. Okay? And when Augustine gets there, it's awful. Even Augustine, who has spent nine years uh, pursuing the pleasures of life, anything that his heart desired, he went after, he himself was still horrified at Rome. Quickly, he moves on to Milan, okay, down uh, in, in the north there. So he goes to Milan and uh, begins, uh, continues teaching rhetoric. All this time, he is still searching. He has, for the better part of a decade... Uh, a live-in girlfriend, a common-law wife, as they would have referred to her. He, he actually ends up, uh, they have a son together, um, and this son eventually uh, dies in adolescence, but they, they do have a child. He lives with this girl, and when he's in Milan, though, things begin to change for Augustine. For the past 15, 20 years or so, he has been living life how he wants to live life. He has this somewhat spiritual satisfaction from this Manichaeism, but he's becoming uh, very much... Uh, disheartened by it. He's beginning to doubt some of their doctrines. Um, and his rhetorical skill isn't landing him where he thought it would. He got everything he wanted in Rome and it wasn't what he expected. So he begins to be a little downcast. And then somebody one day tells him, hey, there is a, a Christian bishop in Milan that is a very, very gifted rhetorician. You should go check him out. Okay? And this man's name is Ambrose. Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose is a very gifted rhetorician. Much like Augustine, he also was a Platonic philosopher at one point. Uh, and actually, he belonged to a heresy called Valentinianism, much like Augustine's Manichaeism. He, Ambrose, is converted by another early church figure, Origen, who teaches him and, uh, and brings him back into uh, the faith. And so Augustine does go and does listen to Ambrose and is very, very impressed with what he's hearing. Uh, he actually loves to spend time 
chatting with Ambrose. Okay? Not necessarily about Christianity, but Ambrose uses every opportunity he can to evangelize Augustine. And you can imagine as he's sitting and listening to these sermons, if you're listening hard for somebody's rhetorical content, it's slowly seeping in. Right? You can't listen with your brain off. And so Augustine likes the sermon style, but eventually he falls under conviction. And he knows that he is going down the wrong path. He knows that this Manichaeism is false. He knows that the God that Ambrose is presenting, the triune God of Scripture that Ambrose preaches, the God, Jesus Christ himself, who became man for our sake, is what he's really been looking for. But he has a problem. He loves his sin. He is totally consumed by the choices that his will has made. And so there's a famous part in Book 8 of the Confessions where he prays to the Lord, give me constancy and chastity, but not yet. Okay? Uh, convert me to you, but not yet. I'm still not ready to let go of everything. Eventually, though, Augustine does convert. Uh, there's a famous story in the Confessions where he is uh, reading the Epistle of Romans with his friend Olypius in uh, Olypius's house. He is burdened by his sin. He runs out into the garden weeping, and he hears in the distance some sound, a sound of some children singing, tole lege, tole lege, tole lege, which in Latin is take and read. He thinks that this is a divine message from God. He runs back into the house, grabs Paul's Epistle to the Romans, lets it fall open, reads a passage from Romans 14, and he is converted in an instant. He says it's like the chains fall off, he feels free, and he immediately turns from his old life. Uh, he is baptized by Ambrose there at the church in Milan. And uh, there's a funny story soon afterward where he's walking through the streets of Milan. Uh, I don't think this part is in the Confessions, but it comes down to us from another one of his books where uh, soon after his conversion, he's walking through the streets. He had put away his common law wife, um, so he is no longer living with this woman anymore. And uh, he meets, though, he sees one of his old consorts, one of his old girlfriends walking down the street. And she's chasing him through the road, and he, they end up like running down the street together through alleyways and backways and stuff. And she's saying, Augustine, Augustine, it's me, it's me. Don't you recognize me? Let's talk. You know, come over here. We used to have such a good time, etc." And he's running away and he's screaming, I know it's you, but it is not me. Okay. Uh, I'm not the same Augustine that you knew, essentially. So he, that's a, kind of a story to encapsulate. He's, he's now fleeing from what he used to love. Okay. He ends his life, of course, as the Bishop of Hippo. He's a pastor of a backwater community there in northern Africa. In the falling Roman Empire, he spends his final days preaching, writing, pastoring until his death in 430. And he leaves behind what uh, Jerslav Pelikan, a historian, calls the most world-shaping body of literature and theology ever produced. And that's true. Uh, Augustine, as I said a minute ago, is the father of Western theology. Um, if you've ever picked up Calvin's Institutes, you know this. You flip every single page of Calvin's Institutes, what do you find? Well, Augustine says, Augustine says, and then Augustine says, okay, on almost every single page. Luther, famously, is an Augustinian monk. He follows the rule of St. Augustine. Uh, in the debate that happened at the Diet of Worms between Martin Luther and Johann Eck, the Roman Catholic, 
they both spend essentially a whole hour quoting Augustine back and forth against each other, okay, trying to prove their points uh, in that debate. And finally, B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Warfield, uh, old Princeton theologian, says that essentially the Reformation can be encapsulated as, um, he says it as uh, Calvin, uh, Augustine's doctrine of grace overcoming Augustine's doctrine of the church. So, uh, very important. You really can't be hyperbolic when it comes to Augustine and his importance in theology. So I commend him to you. But his writings, let's uh, chat just for a moment, uh, educational, polemic writings, personal writings, uh, it's an incredible amount of writing on Christian doctrine, on the Trinity, on music. Uh, the book, The City of God, that he writes to defend Christianity uh, uh, against the charge that it calls the downfall of the Roman Empire. Uh, on rebuke and grace against the errors of Pelagius. And really it's in this context in Augustine's writing where his theology is formed, specifically in that last one I mentioned there, on the errors of Pelagius. Pelagius was a man um, who was a bishop in the church. He himself moved to Rome. Interestingly, this doesn't get mentioned a lot, but Augustine knew Pelagius even before Augustine was a Christian and referred to him as a saintly man. Okay? And if you know any of the story, that's a little strange. Uh, so Augustine... Uh, becomes a Christian later after he's met Pelagius. Pelagius is already in the church. Uh, Pelagius begins to write these books because one day Pelagius is sitting and hears his pastor quote from Augustine. This part in the Confessions where Augustine says, command what you will and give me the will to obey what you command. Right? Classic, we need grace to obey, basically is the, the uh, um, context of the quotation there. And Pelagius doesn't like that. Okay? It leaves a bad taste in his mouth. So Pelagius formulates some doctrines that basically Adam alone was culpable for his sin. We don't inherit the sinfulness of Adam. Pelagius taught that our free will is totally unbiased. You come into the world totally neutral. You can make choices for good or for evil at any time you want without anything uh, uh, in the background. And finally, number three, Pelagius teaches that sin is just a bad habit. Uh, sin is something that we can correct at any time with our wills. We just need better laws and better examples to follow. Jesus Christ being the chief example, we just need to live like he lived and we'll be fine. That's how we find salvation. Augustine is horrified by these doctrines. And Augustine spends his life, really, uh, writing books against Pelagius um, and against his ideas. The one thing, though... Uh, based on those writings that we can take away and that we can learn from Augustine. One word. This idea of, that Augustine puts forward called concupiscence. Concupiscence. All right, that's two words. Um, Latin origin, of course. Uh, concupidity with cupidity. So uh, cupidity is being... Um, uh, in love with something, overly in love with something, right? You can think of Cupid, like the little baby, the arrow, you know, and the idea of love that comes from that. Uh, it's the same idea. Augustine says that we are born naturally lovers, but the problem is our love is bound to anything and everything but God. Okay, that's the idea of being concupiscent. We are born with love, so who are we uh, anthropologically? We are lovers. We are lovers bound to anything but God. Listen to this quotation. 
from the confessions. I loved these lower beauties. Do we love anything but the beautiful? What then is the beautiful, and what is beauty? What is it that attracts and wins us to the things we love? For unless there were in them a grace and beauty, they could by no means draw us unto them. So that's Augustine's whole theory of what it means to be human. It's to be a lover. But the problem, another quotation here from Letter and Spirit, quote, a man's free will indeed avails for nothing except to sin, if he knows not the way of truth. And even after his duty and his proper aim shall begin to, be, uh, shall begin to become known to him, unless he also take delight in and feel a love for it, he neither does his duty, nor sets about it, nor lives rightly. Now, in order that such a course may encourage our affection, God sheds his love in our hearts, not through free will, which arises in ourselves, but through the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. So, if we are ever to have our loves corrected, it must be an act of God. And until we have our loves corrected, our loves are bound to sin. That's how we naturally uh, inherit. And of course, this is the idea of original sin. If you've ever heard that. This is the idea of original sin. We inherit Adam's corruption. Uh, so we will only have new wills for obedience when we have new loves. And we must know the love of God before we can love God. All right. Number two, Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm of Canterbury. 1033 to 1107. It's the dates for Anselm. Far less is known about him. Uh, Anselm never writes a confessions. He never writes a detailed autobiography of his life. But we do know that he is born in Aosta in the northern part of um, uh, Alpine, Italy, somewhere around 1033. His father was a Lombard noble, uh, which is pretty high up in the uh, local politics there. His mother dies giving birth to one of his sisters. And for several years, um, all we really know of Anselm's early adolescent uh, life is that he's a wanderer. Uh, Anselm becomes a vagabond, trekking across the mountains of Europe. Uh, looking for meaning and truth. And he's a searcher, much like Augustine. Eventually, he becomes attracted to the Benedictine Abbey of Beck in Normandy. And uh, he wants to pursue the life of a monk. And his friend, actually, is a fellow Italian named Lanfranc, who's uh, an important figure in church history in his own right. He's the abbot there. He's the leader of that monastery in Beck. And so Anselm submits himself uh, to the habit there at the Abbey of Beck, and becomes a monk. And around the age of 30, after Lanfranc has already moved on, he's moving to bigger and better things um, in his life as a monk, Anselm is recommended to be the new abbot, even though he's only 30 years of age. Pretty unheard of at the time. He's a young man, but he's smart. He's a young man, but he is holy, as recognized by the other monks there. So, within a decade of being elected the abbot, uh, Anselm turns back really into the center of uh, uh, medieval learning. Okay. Um, and in so much so that in 10, uh, 1093, Anselm becomes and he is elected the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? uh, someone we've heard a lot about lately with the death of the Queen, of course. This is the highest office in England okay, in the church. Archbishop of Canterbury is responsible for the whole British Isles. And that's the same way at this time. Anselm is the leader over that. 
toward the end of his life, there are many conflicts uh, that result in several exiles at the hands of Henry I, uh, who wanted to usurp Anselm and his authority in favor of the Archbishop of York. There's a big, uh, you can read more about that. It's, a, it's fun. He dies in 1107 uh, with several unfinished works of theology and a fraught uh, church-state relationship there in England. Um, but his importance, the importance of Anselm uh, for our uh, time here is that Anselm is really what we call the first scholastic theologian. He's the first scholastic theologian. Scholasticism is a way of doing theology uh, that really began in Europe under a man named Boethius. Uh, Boethius, gentlemen, if you're looking for a good name for your next sons, Boethius is a good one. Uh, scholastic theology, essentially, you can hear the, the root word there, school. Okay? It's, it's theology built that comes out of the university system, which is beginning to flourish in Europe in this time. Scholasticism is a, is a way of systematically organizing theology around reasonable arguments that are based on faith, is the best way to think about it. And Anselm is the principal thinker of this. He, he writes a few books, um, The Monologion, The Proslogion, and Critias Homo, which we're going to talk about here. The Monologion, uh, so a little bit about Anselm. Anselm's life goal is that he wants to find one watertight argument for the existence of God. That's the only thing that he is after. And of course, this isn't... Um, be very clear about this. He's not kicking the ladder of faith out from under him and just thinking on blind, rational reason and my own strength, I'm going to find something that tells me God exists. Okay, no. He bases everything that he does on Psalm 52. Uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He begins with uh, the fact that God does exist, but he wants to prove it to himself with natural reason. And this is where we get our famous phrase, uh, uh, faith-seeking understanding, which is essentially the motto of scholastic theology. Faith-seeking understanding. It's a quotation from Anselm. So he produces this first work, the, the Monologion, and it's basically, it's a meditation, it's a reflection, the whole thing is written as a prayer, but he's looking for this one argument. He publishes it and thinks that it is the, uh, the closest thing he's ever going to get, and immediately after he publishes it, he's unsatisfied. He starts almost immediately on a second work. Okay, it's not good enough. He thinks he's produced his crowning achievement, but he has to do another one. Uh, and that's where we get what we call the proslogion. The proslogion. In the proslogion, we get one of the most difficult and subtle and strange arguments for the existence of God that has ever been written called the ontological argument. Uh, I'm going to leave it to you to go look it up and to read about it. Uh, it's very complex, but essentially it argues uh, God is that than which nothing greater can be imagined. That's his watertight existence uh, argument for the existence of God. God is that than which nothing greater can be thought. Okay. Obviously, you can immediately begin to think of some holes in there. People have been trying to knock it down for thousands of years. But there are several, several arguments that are in its favor. Um, consider it. It'd be a fun study for you to do. Most importantly, though, I think, and for our purposes, uh, Anselm writes this last book called Crudeus Homo, Why the God-Man, or Why God Became Man. And in Crudeus Homo, uh, Anselm gives us the first 
um, full-orbed theology of what we call substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. So obviously you know the words there. Uh, atonement is a word that is uh, invented by William Tyndale when the Bible was being translated there into English for the first time. At one minute, with the one death of Jesus, God has uh, done the one thing that will take us, um, that will pay for our sins. That's what atonement means. But it's substitutionary atonement. You see, for thousands of years, up till Anselm, the church had been, or hundreds of years, excuse me, the, ter the church had been teaching, based on Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, some other guys, that when Jesus died, it was a ransom that he was paying to Satan. Okay. That was the essence of what they thought that Jesus did on the cross. We were held captive to sin and slavery, bondage to Satan. Jesus comes along. He is crucified and raised. And through this, God pays Satan a debt that we owed. Okay. And there is partial truth to that, of course. And at the same time as Anselm was writing, there's another man, Peter Abelard, uh, who is a fun character to explore uh, if you want to read about him. Peter Abelard, he puts forward uh, what's called the moral theory of the atonement, which is basically warmed over Pelagianism that we just talked about a minute ago. Jesus is just this example. Uh, uh, he's a good moral uh, uh, idea to follow. Of course, he's the crown of Christianity. But all he really did in dying was just uh, give our free wills the proper direction so that we can follow his example of love and sacrifice, etc. And for Ansem, that just will not do. Okay. In fact, for Anselm, both of these are true but incomplete. And at the foundation of what it means to believe in the death of Jesus is to believe that Jesus died on your behalf. That he was the substitute for your sins. That he was the lamb that was sacrificed in your place. Uh, and the full presentation of that is laid out by Anselm and Curdeus Homo. So we learn from Anselm, theology, Christology, soteriology, all these important aspects uh, the monologion, if you would like to read that, it's actually pretty short and pretty easy. Uh, it's all a meditation on the attributes of God. Uh, uh, God is omniscient, uh, omnipresent, etc., impassable. This is where we get all those ideas from. So what do we need? We need the greatest conceivable being that can ever be thought, showing the greatest conceivable love that can ever be felt in a substitutionary death, and the fact that God became man for us. That's what Anselm teaches us. And then finally, with our uh, last few minutes here, uh, oh boy, 15 minutes, Thomas Aquinas. All right, <laughs> let's do our best. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, you probably heard his name, 1225 to 1274, his dates. He was born in a place, of course, uh, Aquino. All right, he's Thomas of Aquino. That's where we get his name from. Uh, his father is the Count of Aquino, a very high official there in the city. He's the youngest son of seven. And his uncle was actually the abbot of Monte Cassino. And if you know anything about uh, abbots, I know we've uh, maybe some monastic scholars in here that I've not met yet. Uh, but if you know anything about the uh, uh, Monte Cassino Abbey, it's the first Benedictine, it's the first Western monastery ever established, basically. And Aquinas' uncle is the abbot. He's the leader of this monastery and has been for several years. So in the medieval era, if a king has or a count has several sons, obviously they're not all going to be able to succeed him in the office. Okay? So usually he would take his youngest son or his youngest set of sons and he would make sure that they were going to be heads of certain 
um, uh, monasteries. Okay, that's how he would ensure for them that they were going to have a successful future, carry on the legacy of the family. Uh, they would kind of pull some strings there. And obviously, you can imagine, uh, this wrecks the monasteries. Okay, they're known at this time for being very uh, immoral places. So he sets him up. Uh, he sets Thomas up to become the successful successor of his uncle there at the Abbey of Monte Cassino. Thomas is sent off to study. And then all of a sudden, Thomas comes home one day and tells Dad, I'm not going to do that. Right? Comes home about the age of uh, 19, somewhere around there, and says, uh, Dad, I've, I'm going to make my own way. There's this new, young, upstart group of monks called the Dominicans, okay, led by St. Dominic. They're fiery. Their name, literally, Dominicane, the Lord's dogs. Okay? They are the hounds of heaven. All right? They're known for being these fiery men who uh, teach and preach and lead crusades, etc. And Thomas is attracted to that. Okay, more than just an average life being the leader of another corrupt monastery, he wants the real thing. And so naturally, what do his father and brothers do? They lock him up in the family castle. Okay, they throw him into a dungeon for one year. And they plead with him, please don't do this. Okay, don't besmirch the family name like this. His brothers... Uh, are, every day send large amounts of alcohol into the room to try to get him drunk. Uh, they send other sorts of revelries uh, in there to try to dissuade him from this overambitiousness, this unnecessary zeal that's going to cost the family uh, their good name. And it doesn't work. Thomas one time famously uh, chases out some uh, loose women with a branding iron okay, to try to get them out of the room there with him. And then uh, makes a big cross on the door. Okay. His mother finally intervenes, as all good moms do, in 1244. Uh, and he goes to the University of Paris in Cologne and sets out to be a Dominican friar. He's a student of Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great. Uh, excuse me, Alfred the Great. And Albert the Great, I'm sorry, messed up. Uh, who is uh, one of the heads of um, scholastic theology at this time. Thomas is made fun of a lot at his seminary uh, or at his studies there because he's a large man with a very large head who doesn't talk very much. So he, his classmates refer to him as the dumb ox, okay. is, uh, is uh, how they affectionately talk to him. Albertus Magnus one day hears the other students making fun of Thomas, and he tells them one day, the bellows of this dumb ox will resound throughout the world. And very prophetic and true. Uh, Thomas ends up uh, being the standard of scholastic theology, and still today, uh, a touchstone of theology. So by the age of 49, Thomas produces the Summa Theologiae, uh, Summa Theologiae, 3,500 pages, the Summa Contra Gentilis, 400 pages, nine full-length exegetical works, two works on Boethius, 11 expositions of Aristotle, 85 sermons, glosses, polemics, letters, philosophy books. By age 49, within about the span of 20 years, uh, I'm not sure what I'm doing in my life. Okay. It's, a, it's a very, very impressive amount of scholarship he leaves behind. He has a mystical experience near the end of his life, never writes again, and in fact declares all that I have written is straw compared to this vision of God that I've had. So he spends the rest of his life in quiet contemplation. How in the world? In 10 minutes do we talk about Aquinas here? 
Um, he fully applies scholastic theology. Um, charting the distinction between nature and grace. I think the most important thing that we can learn from Aquinas, though, is ethics. Okay, what do we do? How do we live as human beings? Once we know and understand from Augustine, we are born in sin, we are born bent away from God, we love anything that is not God, well then God in love loves us through Christ's substitution, right? Anselm. And now we have affections for God. We want to live lives. We have wills now that desire to live correctly. And Aquinas and all the reformers, following Aquinas, interestingly, say that what we need is habits. We need good habits. If we are ever to redirect our loves, we must put ourselves in the direction of love. We have to cultivate virtue on a daily basis through uh, participation in Sunday school and the sacraments and the daily means of grace that God's, God places before us through uh, friends and uh, his word. So more on that, we can talk about Thomas maybe a little bit again next week. Uh, we'll have to move on. And the last thing I want to say here as we're wrapping up, one thing I didn't mention about uh, medieval theology uh, that's very important is and important to understand is that uh, this wasn't ivory tower stuff. Okay. Uh, none of these theologians are sitting around expecting their works just to sit on a shelf. During this medieval period, this theology is taken and spread across Europe. Okay. Still today, we see the castles and the amazing churches and cathedrals that remain. This is theology with legs. Okay. It moves. Uh, for the medievals, there was no separation, hard distinction between the redemption that we have in Christ and the dominion that we are called to take, between salvation and mission. Uh, this theology was theology on the move, and we would be good. We would do well to uh, learn that lesson. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.